Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is David Streit. Now, if you're not familiar with David, David is a Portland-based mixer, producer, recording engineer, live sound engineer. He's worked with a lot of great artists such as Ben Folds, Toby Keith, Henry Rollins, Johnny Cash, and so much more. And he's done a lot of different work, like I said, in many different areas of the audio industry from the studio to live stuff and and more as you'll hear in this interview. And in this conversation, we have a great chat all about the ideas of live sound versus the studio and how there's a lot of crossover between those two and how you can take little bits and pieces from each of them and implement it into your process and how really working in live sound can be a very beneficial thing for people who are actually trying to get more into the studio side of things. And David has some great examples of how live sound really will help you grow your studio business. And we get into all that inside of this chat. We also have a really good chat all about ambience and ways that you can utilize your home studio or whatever environment you're recording in to make a more ambient sound so you can have a lot more size in your mix, a lot more space and a lot more depth. And he shares a lot of great tips for different miking techniques, different positions that you can put things in and different ways to utilize your space so that you can get a lot more out of that ambience. So I think that you're going to find this episode really interesting. And like I said, David's got a lot of great tips that you can take from this episode. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. David Strait, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. And thanks for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, man. For people who might not know your story and your background and the kind of projects you've worked on over the years and how you got into music and all that stuff. Can you give us that, that short story of yeah. how you got here? I'll try, I'll try to give you the brief version sure. of it. Um, <laughs> it's never I, brief, no, I, but it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think like probably all of us, I started off as a music fan. So, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, I was listening to music all the time. Really, it was a, such a huge part of my life. And, you know, probably mostly rock music, um, but also, like, my dad loved jazz. So that was around the house, too. And that, I think, has an influence as well. Um, and I, I, as far as playing, I did a little bit. You know, in, in grade school, I was a percussionist in the school band. And in high school, I sang in choirs and did stuff like that. Um, I finally got a guitar when I was probably a senior in high school or something like that. Um, but I was never really serious about being in bands, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Like I, I consider myself an engineer primarily, uh, although I do play as well. So I got into college and there was a really active student activities department at the University of Louisville where I grew up. And uh, so I got involved with them and they were putting on concerts all the time. And I just started learning live sound. I, I really gravitated towards that. And, and so, and eventually started doing sound in clubs around town and that kind of thing. And so um, did that for several years and eventually got really interested in recording and transferred down to Middle Tennessee State University and went through their recording program there. And uh, shout out to MTSU, fantastic program, uh, great teachers. I really got a lot out of it. Um, and then I graduated from MTSU, and hung, which is outside Nashville, Tennessee. Cool. Um, and hung around Nashville. I was probably in Nashville for about 12 years total. Um, 
right out of college, started freelancing and uh, eventually got a job as a staff assistant at Quad Studios in Nashville, um, which was fantastic. Um, did some actual engineering, but mostly assisting and got to look over the shoulder of a lot of really fantastic engineers who were just coming through all the time. Um, you and I discussed briefly right before we started uh, the recording for the podcast uh, how useful it is to be able to get perspective on, on on how different people do things and and see how different engineers approach things. And, and I just had such a wonderful opportunity in Nashville to do that, uh, which was huge. Um, uh, and then... Eventually went freelance in Nashville and just worked in studios around town for a long time. Um, and eventually when I decided it was time to leave Nashville, um, I did a short stint in Connecticut where I actually did a fair amount of uh, sound for location sound for uh, video recordings. And I was, you know, as the guy with the mixer strapped on my waist and the boom pole running around behind the camera person. And that was interesting. Did that for a short time. Moved out to the West Coast, uh, landed in Santa Cruz, California, and started doing a mix of studio work and live sound work, both. And eventually moved up to Portland, Oregon, uh, where I am now. And I'm still doing, so I'm doing a combination of studio recording and mixing. I also do live sound work, uh, mostly in clubs and small venues around town. And, uh, and I also do, um, th those are my main things. I also do some consulting work. I'm working with a client right now who's setting up his studio at home and helping him with configuring things and, and, um, teaching him some private lessons as well for recording. So I do some of that kind of thing too. That's very cool. Yeah, man, there's quite a bit to unpack in there. And, and one of the things you said early on that, that I thought, you know, you even said it was kind of a, uh, an anomaly is the idea of you wanted to be an engineer and not the band guy. And, and I think that that's like, it, it is, it is very different than a lot of the people that we've had on the show before, because a lot of people start as the musicians and it's like, Oh, I just want to do it for my own, for my own band. And like my band, we're going to be rock stars, but I'm going to be the one that's going to like get us there and record our stuff. Right. Like that seems to be like a pretty typical path that a lot of people take is like, you know, so, so what was it about the engineering position for you that like just stood out as like, that was the thing you wanted to do. And, and not pursue music instead. Yeah, well, I I did have the love for music, so I, I wanted to be involved with music. I wanted to be around music. Um, I also have you know a, a predilection towards technology and and gear and knobs and lights and stuff. So that was part of it. And and you know not not really being a serious musician myself, especially in the beginning, but loving music and wanting to be a part of it. Yeah the sound aspect of it was just a natural thing for me to gravitate towards. That's very cool. Yeah, I love that. And that, you know, I think that that is, um, it's good for people to hear that too, because there are a lot of people in your shoes that, you know, are maybe like, ah, I'm not a serious musician, but like, I love music, like, but I want to get into this. Like, do I need to be a musician that's like really good or talented to get into audio engineering? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, does it, should, should an engineer have like solid, uh, solid musical understanding to get into it? or do I, you I don't that? think you have to have a solid musical understanding. I think it's absolutely something you should learn about and pursue. You know, get an instrument and, and, and learn how to play it, even if you're not great at it. Just that experience. First of all, it's so much fun, you know, messing around with guitar or playing drums or whatever. It's just a blast. 
no, you know, and playing with other people is a really great experience too. You don't have to be great, but if you can learn something about how an instrument works and have that experience and work on that, that will help you interact with musicians and empathize with them and, and help with your understanding of, you know, when, when somebody comes into the studio, even though I'm not a great guitar player, I can maybe help them with an aspect of their guitar, or I can give them some suggestions, or I can at least understand where they're coming from and what they're doing. So having some musical experience, I think, is a must. It doesn't have to be your primary thing, and you don't have to be great at it. Mm -hmm. You just have to work at it. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also one of those things where the more you're in the studio, the more you pick up on a lot of that stuff, too. Absolutely. Like, I, and, you know, so it's sort of kind of uh, good. Well, just briefly, also, an extension of that, when I started doing live shows, I was also um, very much fascinated by musicians and what they did and, and like guitar pedals and various types of amplifiers. And, and so really honing in on that and paying attention to that which really helps me in my work as an engineer. That's, that's a really great point. And to, to what you said earlier of like, you were just a, you were fascinated with technology. And, and I think that I'm in the same boat with you. Like, you know, I always loved just whenever I played in a band or when I played, played at shows, I, I was always watching the sound guy. Like there was something fascinating about all the knobs and everything that they were playing with. And I might not have understood it, but I wanted to get to know it, you know? And, and I think, I think it does make sense that even if you, um, aren't the musician yourself, but you you have that appreciation for the different types of gear out there, or, or you learn about the different amplifiers or uh, pedals and all that kind of stuff. Like you can you can still have a lot of fun with it, and it, it becomes such a crucial part. And, and, and in some ways too, I, I I think that there are a lot of musicians that don't even know their own gear really well. So if you're that person that can, you know, they take care of the playing and you take care of like the tech side of it, then there's there's a lot of uh, benefit there. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And and I would say also. Um, being attentive to the musician's experience of playing. Um, something as simple as I know a guitar player who is usually right-handed has the neck of their instrument on the left side, so maybe if there's a vocal mic stand, it should come in from the right so it doesn't get in the way of them playing. Or just things like that, Understanding, trying to understand the experience of what it's like to play and what goes into that, and, and again, empathy and, and, and trying to be helpful from that standpoint. And also, also, you know, even if you're not a musician, you definitely want to listen to a lot of music. I don't think any of us probably have a problem with that. Um, but you want to pay attention to what is going on in music. And, and even if you don't know the theory behind it and the technical aspects of it, at least develop a feel for it by, by really paying attention to different types of music and listening a lot. 100% I agree with that. I think, I, I do think that there are a lot of People don't struggle necessarily with listening to music, but I think critically listening to music is yes. a different thing, right? And being attentive to the details of what's going on in the song and, you know, arrangement things or panning or, uh, you know, structure or whatever, you know, like all that stuff is is the critical stuff that a lot of people don't know to pay attention to. And you have to kind of just hone in on that because I think that's the stuff that makes you a better engineer. Absolutely. You know, that those are those little details that let you map out the sonic landscape of your song before you even hit record and you know you're gonna double your guitars or that kind of thing you know it's just like you know those are those are the little details that go a long way in the end yeah and and yeah to build on that like i i i have taken some music theory classes and and i know which is valuable to do to learn something about that i can't sight read music or anything like that but i understand structure and music enough that if the guitar player says hey i want to 
punch in on the second bar of the first verse, I know how to get there and, and do that, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, you so have an idea helpful. of what that means. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's just like, yeah, the more you listen to that, the more you and just listening, even sometimes just being a fly on the wall and like just listening to the musicians talk to their their bandmates in the studio, that allows you to understand like how they communicate to each other. And then you can just kind yeah. of insert yourself in the same same wording, right? Because sometimes, I you know, people will call like a I've had people just say like, oh, like chorus, chorus one or whatever. But really, like maybe in my mind, I thought it was the verse or something like that, yeah. you know, but in their yeah. mind, they've, they've structured it differently. So sometimes just like being alert to those little things go a long way just to better communication with the artists. And yeah, I think I think that goes a long way. Um, Definitely. Yeah. One other thing you had mentioned uh, when you were telling us your, your background is like you've done a lot of different work in the audio industry. It's not it hasn't just been all in the studio. It's been live sound. Yeah. You did location recording. And I'm curious to talk a little bit about that, because, again, like I, I relate to that in a lot of ways. Like I, I worked in live sound. I did studio work. I did tour managing. I was you know, I was doing a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, I worked in audio post. So like to me, like I, I don't I'd love to get your experience in that. Like, do you feel like having gone through those different areas of the audio industry has made you a better engineer or what, like, why did you choose to go into all those different in industries? Is it, was it just because there wasn't any work or was it because you wanted to dabble in different areas? You know, I, I think it was, uh, it was, it wasn't necessarily a conscious plan, you know, that I, that I plotted out, but it was as opportunities presented themselves, I thought, Oh, this is interesting. And I'll try that out. And, and it was kind of like that. Uh, and, and it does, the, the breadth of experience definitely informs all of the work I do. Things I've learned doing live sound in, in, come in handy in the studio and vice versa and all of that. Um, and I, one thing I, I'll add to that I didn't go through um, in my background uh, that I think is important is uh, the, the recording program I went through, the school I went through is largely pop music oriented, close, you know, pop, broadly construed, all genres of pop music, um, close miking things, separation in the studio, typical multi-track recording, which is mostly what I do day in, day out. But I had an opportunity to do an internship at the Aspen Music Festival, which is a classical music festival that happens every summer. And that was amazing because it was a, a style of recording that was very different from what we did in school. It was recording large ensembles of musicians with very few microphones, you know, maybe a main stereo pair and a few spot mics here and there. And that, a real emphasis on stereo techniques, that is huge for me too. So yeah, this, this wide variety of experience uh, is this huge grab bag of ideas and things I can draw upon. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. And 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 I 100% agree with that. And and I can definitely relate to it as well. I think, you know, having worked in those different areas, there was something that I picked up in every little field that I've been able to apply to to like recording or live sound like there's there is, in my opinion, there's a lot of crossover. Like, do you feel like do you feel like that as well? Oh, yeah, there's a huge amount of crossover. You know, there's, there's a let's and talk about live sound versus studio work. Sure. And some people will say, oh, it's night and day. It's totally different. There are some specific skill sets that are kind of isolated to either one, but most of it really crosses over. You know, troubleshooting is kind of the same, figuring out why something's not working right and getting it going or getting a show running on time or a session running on time. Um, the basics of getting a mix together, you know, all the live sound experience, having to get a mix together fairly quickly is a huge asset in the studio. Just all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and, and maybe even most importantly, just 
people skills, you know, interacting with musicians, being helpful, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you mentioned about just getting a mix up and running really quickly. And, and that's definitely one of the big takeaways I had personally as well, where, you know, live sound, you, you don't have time to like solo the kick and tweak it. And then, you know, <laughs> it's like you just got to get up and running really quickly and yeah. it might not be perfect, but that's fine. You yep. perfect it as you go along. And there's an element of, of speed that you just like, I, I, I think that the live sound side of things is really important for people because, because of that, like it, it forces you to think quick and maybe not get it in your head as much. And, uh, you know, overthink a lot of the little details, right? Yeah, it definitely uh, encourages you to look at the bigger picture and not get lost in the weeds. Yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. How else would you say that the live sound world has impacted the work that you do in the studio? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, another thing is getting clients, honestly. Um, the, the way my life is set up right now, I do a mix of live sound work and studio work. And so I meet lots of local musicians, bands in the, in the scene around Portland, and those oftentimes end up being my studio clients. That, you know, that's my introduction to them. We meet doing a show, and then we get to talking, and we end up doing some studio work too. So that is definitely a huge impact. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great point. And I, I think that there, there is something to that too, where you, you know, if you're working live sound, sometimes you're playing, you're doing shows that have like, five, six bands on them in a night. And it's like, that's five or six bands that you have the ability to impress with your skills and, yeah. and, and, and all that. Right. I think a lot of people have this like weird deranged view of live sound guys as being like this, these cranky people that just sit there and don't do anything. And it's just like, hate, hate, like, you know, like at least, at least that's how I feel like a lot of people in like my area seem to think of a lot of the live guys. You know, but I it, hear that. I hear that impression. So just don't be that person. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, 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 it's, <laughs> <laughs> and to me, it's like, yeah, don't be that person. And then you'll stand out because if everyone else is like that, then you're, you're the exception to that. And people like you and want to, want to work with you and are excited by it. And, you know, it, it makes it a lot easier to go to a band at the end of the night and be like, Hey, like great show. Like, you know, do you guys, do you guys, have you ever talked about recording? You know, do you have any albums? Like, you can get on all these kind of, all these kinds of conversations as a result of just doing a good job and and being a good person right yeah and yeah so i i love that i think i think that that's a great tactic for for building your studio clientele and especially especially if you're in the earlier stages of, of building a studio where maybe you don't have a ton of artists coming through the studio it's it's a good way to you know supplement your income while you know building the studio clientele and eventually maybe a word of mouth snowball begins from there right definitely yeah definitely yeah. and it's even even if bands you meet aren't going to, you know, a specific band you work with might not become your client, but you get to know them. You're getting to know people in the music scene. You just, you're becoming a known face. People get comfortable with you. It's all really good. And it's, it's super fun too. I love, I love mixing live. There's, there's an adrenaline rush to it. There's the immediate feedback. The audience is right there and you see how they react. And that's very satisfying oftentimes. And it's super fun. For sure. Yeah. I, th I think it's also, it is more, it is creative in a, in a sense too, right? Like I think a lot of people think the studio is really creative because you have all the time in the world to mess around with stuff, but there is something to that rush of like, you got a band coming up that maybe has instruments that you've never done in the studio before. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. shit, got to figure this out. You know, like yeah. let's yeah. have some fun with this and, and maybe have fun with the creative mix. And you know, you, it's like mixing an album at that point. Once you're up and running, you can have fun and 
you know, position things wherever you want. And yeah. And it, it is very much like mixing a record. Um, it's, it's a, it's a quick, maybe simplified version of mixing a record. You know, if you're in the studio mixing a record, it can be very creative and you have more time to experiment with things and, and maybe you have more control, you know, in a live situation, there's a bit less control, maybe <laughs> a lot less control, but there's still a very creative aspect in terms of, um, how how do I best present this music to the audience? How do I get the artist's intent across, the artist's message across? How do I make an emotional impact? And you have to try to do that very quickly and try to really get to the essence of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I think it is can be very creative. Of course. And it's also interesting too, because in the studio, I feel like there's, in the studio, there's there's maybe more room for, there, there is more room for communication between the bands and the engineers. And, sure. you know, sometimes sometimes the, the artists are a little bit more opinionated and they've got their own vision. But in, in, in live sound, sometimes you, you have no foundation for what the band is looking for other than just kind of what their effects are on stage and that kind of stuff. You just kind of go with it, right? So yeah. so it sometimes can be more creative in the sense that you haven't they haven't directed you. You kind of just do your own interpretation of that mix and, you know, ho- hopefully that... You know, don't go too crazy, obviously, that it right. that makes the band That's sound That's a really whack, good but. exercise, a really good practice that informs studio work because, you know, I'm often working with bands that I've never worked with before. And it's, it's super cool when I have friends come back and we've worked together bunches of times, and that's great too. But often it's music I've never heard before. And on the fly, I have to kind of figure out, like, what what's the essence of this music? What's important? What's the standout thing? And how do I present that to the audience in a way that's compelling and, and try to, you know, make a mix that really comes across. And, and you know, I draw upon all the music I've ever listened to. You know, that's why it's important to listen to a lot of music and the experiences I've had. And I'm trying to pay really sharp attention to what's going on on stage. You know, what's what's the guitar player is taking a solo now. OK, that's important. Or, or just anything like that, and really trying to think about, well, how does that keyboard pad fit into the music? Where should it sit? And, you know, how does that work? And, and how that evolves over the course of a song. So it's really a crash course in, and, or it can be a crash course in, in sort of analyzing the elements of a song and how they all work together. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as you're saying that, it was kind of making me visualize, like, if you're watching a band on stage, there's usually somebody in the band maybe it's a singer maybe it's the guitar player doing the solo or whatever but there's usually something that's trying to catch your attention and that's trying yeah. to be that 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 center of attention and it's like when you when you can visualize it it makes it easier to mix it as well because you're sure. like okay the guitar player is going up for in front of the stage for a solo like going to turn up that guitar make him the forefront for now and then you know pull everyone back a little bit and like you kind of you can visualize your automation so to speak you know yeah, absolutely. And you also, over time, you get, again, this is paying attention to music, you get a sense for song structure. And and you, you, you have a, there's a feeling oftentimes that like, okay, a chorus was just sung. And, and you can feel, especially a good band, there's transitional elements, they kind of sometimes even telegraph what's going to happen next. And you can feel like, okay, there's probably some kind of instrumental solo that's going to come up in this next section. And you look out for it, like maybe it's going to be the guitar player, or maybe it's a sax player, you just but you look out, you, you learn to look out for who's going to be doing the, the thing that should be the center of attention next, and you, you're ready to just bring that up to the forefront. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so another interesting thing that you've done a bunch of, and this kind of uh, is an offshoot of the live conversation, but 
Mm. You've done a lot of live albums as well and and live recordings. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe some of the challenges of mixing live albums versus the studio stuff. Yeah, well, the challenges of mixing live albums are largely bleed. There's, you know, if it was a live album, there's probably going to be plenty of other things in the in the lead vocal mic. So that's definitely a challenge. Um, and and maybe a challenge is oftentimes there. I, I don't know if this is a direct challenge to the mixing, but oftentimes the performance is kind of what you get. You know, I mean, sometimes with a live album, the, the performers might come into the studio afterwards and redo some things. But oftentimes, at least the things I've done, that's not the case. So again, trying to present things in the best light and, and trying to get a mix together, learning to work with the bleed rather than trying to work against it. Cause there's going to be, you know, you're not going to have perfect isolation at all. Those are the main challenges. Yeah. That, well, that's a couple of good points there that you brought up. And, and I think the, uh, the one side of it being like the, you don't always get those perfect performances. And, you know, I think as engineers, we're always, especially in the studio, we're like trying to make everything as pristine as possible or like, you know, sound is clear. And so, you know, there's that tendency of like when somebody messes up in the studio, you're just like, ah, I'll, I'll edit it. But in the live side of things, like how often are you editing those live recordings? Very rarely. Yeah. Very, and because, it, again, because of the bleed, it would be tricky to edit. Although sometimes, sometimes it's a situation where maybe they did several takes of the same song. Or, you know, maybe maybe we recorded two nights of performance and then there might be some editing, you know, together, different takes, like let's use the first half of the song from this night and let's use the second half from that night. And sometimes that kind of thing might happen. Yeah, but I guess that only really works too if they're playing to a click or like, you know, they're pretty consistent. Or, or at least, if, yeah, pretty consistent. Yeah, so you have to watch out for that. Yeah. You can't have a massive tempo shift. I mean, sometimes, you know, you can get away with, Sometimes you can get away with things in transitions. Like if there's a little tempo shift between the verse and the chorus and you edit right at that point, maybe you can get away with it. It, it just has to feel right. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, it has to feel natural and, and not like you not not like it's edited. And all of a sudden the band was just like hyper mode, like let's just play you know 20 beats per minute faster or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you also brought up another point there about the bleed. And you talked about the idea of working with the bleed as opposed to against it. And I'd love to talk about that. Like, so you're you're not you don't find yourself gating a lot in live recordings or, or do you? I do sometimes. I I often don't use gates if something like like even on a studio recording for like toms on a drum kit. I often go in and just manually mute stuff. I don't like gates because sometimes the release isn't quite right or that kind of thing. So I, I will use them sometimes. But yeah, sometimes it's gating. Um, sometimes it's just realizing that the, there is going to be that bleed and just trying to incorporate it into the mix in a way that sounds good and just use it. Um, you know, if you're there for the recording part of the process, then you definitely try to mic things and you use microphone technique in a way that maybe minimizes bleed or at least will work better. You know, um, and, and this comes into play in studio recordings too. Like a drum kit has a bunch of mics on it, you know, and there's bleed from various things. Or maybe, some, you know, sometimes I do a project where we have a guitar amp live in the room with the drums and everything else, and there's going to be some bleed there. And you know, part of it's microphone choice. Um, and, and one thing to think about is a, a, a quality microphone 
um, has a good off-axis frequency response oftentimes. So, you know, if you're using a cardioid microphone, the on-axis response in the microphone has a certain sound to it. But how does the mic sound at, for a source coming from beside it or behind it? And if the frequency response is drastically different, it might sound kind of ugly. But if the frequency response is pretty consistent, it just gets quieter as you go around the side of the microphone, then that bleed coming through might sound pretty good and you might be able to incorporate it and might work well. So that's something to think about when you're setting up you know, a multi-microphone situation. Um, and, and, you know, positioning mics. So hopefully, you know, it, it, the way, it's such a way to maximize the sound that you're getting and the, and the quality of the sound you're getting. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think that that is an important point too, because so many people think about only the, the on access sound coming from the mic and they're not thinking about the, the, the rejection that these mics are also designed for. You know, we, we always think about the mic as being like, Oh, we, we gotta get that great sound, but it's like, there's, the rejection of it is also important and it's probably something that a lot of people don't pay enough attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you find yourself in in these situations where you're either recording live on a on a stage or or maybe live off the floor in the studio, are you ever using like baffling or anything like that to try to get a little bit more isolation between things or Definitely in the studio, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh on stage less so because it's just not practical usually. Um but maybe sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but certainly in the studio, definitely using gobos, baffling, that kind of thing. Yeah. Cause I know, I know I've definitely seen people in the live world, they'll use like the drum shields or they'll like turn the amps to the back of the stage or that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. That, that kind of thing does come into play sometimes. It really depends on the band and their setup and if you can get away with that or not. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I've definitely, I, I know for myself, like there's been a couple of times where I've worked with the bands and, you know, l- we'll do live recordings and we just point all the amps at the back of the stage. So they're not bleeding through everyone's mics. Right. But, yeah. but even then, like sometimes the bands are just like, no, nah, that looks dumb or, or like, you know, you, you find something to like hide the fact that there's amps that are backwards, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just looks but cool also, on stage. I think in addition to that, you have to be, especially in a live recording, you need to be careful about not taking the band out of their comfort zone. True. So if, for instance, you might point the amps at the back of the stage so there's not as much bleed, but then the guitar player might not feel comfortable because they're used to having that amp right pointing at them where they can really hear it. And maybe that affects their performance. And, you know, maybe they don't play as well because they're not in the situation they feel comfortable in. And that, you know, the performance is actually more important than the sound you get. And so if you have to choose between the two, hopefully you can, you know, optimize everything. But if you have to choose between the two, and this is true in the studio too, then choose performance because uh, a really great performance is going to connect with the listener better than a really great sound. And, you know, you have to try to figure out the way to get a a great sound no matter how you're configured or the best sound you can at least. But choose the performance first. I love that. That's That's a great great thing to keep in mind. The performance is always better than the sound you get or more important than the sound you get. I, I, hundred percent. I think that that is, uh, is definitely critical, especially in the live settings when sometimes as fast as the way to go, right? Like you don't have the time to retake things and get it perfect, you know? Um, yeah, that, that's awesome. I love that. Um, one, one thing I did want to ask you about when it comes to your recordings is I notice that with your recordings, you do a really great job of creating ambience within your mixes. Mm, and, thank you. And, and I was curious to learn a little bit more about your approach when it comes to that that sort of thing. Like, are you typically relying a lot more on 
live ambience that is just happening in the room that you've recorded? Or are you adding a lot of things in post? Like, what, what is your normal approach there? I, I certainly do uh, use reverb plugins and that kind of stuff, artificial reverb for sure. But I, I am absolutely recording in such a way that utilizes live ambience. I love room mics, you know, for drums or even guitars or other things like that. I There's a certain realism you get with natural ambience that's very difficult to duplicate in an artificial way. So I try to utilize that. Um, and I, I wish I could remember, probably several people have said this to me, several different mentors, but one thing to think about is distance equals depth. So when you're miking something up, you know, close mics can have a lot of impact and get a really present sound that's really great. But it's good to blend those in with maybe some more distant mics to get some ambience and get that sense of space and that sense of depth. And I would say that's largely how I achieve that in most of my recordings. I love that. And and also when you have that distance, it does change up the frequency response that you're getting off of those it mics, does. obviously, right? So, it does. So, so are you... I think that is kind of a balance that a lot of people sometimes have a, have a bit of a struggle with is like that upfront sound, but then having depth as well. Right. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes they don't go together. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And you have to, I mean, you have to work on the blend. I definitely pay a lot of attention to maybe the blend between close mics and distant mics. Um, you have to really pay attention to your phase relationships between, you know, mics that are different distances from, uh, a source. So for instance, if you have a drum kit and you have, let's say you have a close mic on the snare, as you probably would, and you also have maybe an overhead mic and maybe even a room mic on your drum kit. When you're setting up the drums and getting sounds, you know, listen to those things together, those elements together and see how they sound and see if, you know, that that distance between those mics is causing a hollow, phasey sound or if it sounds pretty solid together. And if it's not sounding right, move the mics until you get it right. Or um, also the the polarity inversion button, the phase flip, um, is a really useful thing to mess around with. You know, um, flip the polarity on the snare mic while you're listening to the snare and the overhead together and just see which one sounds better. One of them's going to sound better and use that. You know, so pay attention to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's really helpful. And what about uh, on the topic of ambience and distance affecting depth like how dependent is the ambience on the room itself it's very yeah that's uh, the room is critical when you start recording ambience and more distant mics then it becomes much more important to have a good sounding room Uh, so that can be tricky depending upon the room you work in I'm, i'm fortunate i do most of my tracking at a studio that i'm involved with here in town called the hallowed halls and we've got a huge room, and it sounds cool, and it's a great place to, to record. So that's helpful. Um, if you're not blessed with such a fantastic room off the bat, you might experiment some and, and find, you know, um, find... And this is a thing, too, actually, as an aside. Positioning in the room can be really important. So if you're going to record drums, and you've got your room that you're going to record them in, Maybe move, take, maybe not the whole drum kit, but take some elements of it, maybe a kick drum and a snare drum or just a snare drum and put it some different places in the room and see where it sounds better. There's probably a point, a part of the room where it's going to, the room's going to enhance the sound in a way that's better. And so the first thing is to figure out where to position the instrument in the room. And that can be really useful. And then, you know, also if you're going to record some ambience, mess around with some different 
room positionings. Maybe put a mic up against a wall or 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 if you've got a hallway that's maybe a little reverberant next to the room you're recording in, maybe leave the door to that hallway open and put an ambience mic out in that hallway. But it's just it's a realm for experimentation to try to find something that's going to work well. I, I'm a big believer in trying to get good sounds right off the bat with microphone technique and placement and tuning the instruments. And of course, that kind of stuff's really important too. And dialing in the, maybe a guitar amplifier sound, trying to get the sound at the source and maybe experimenting with some microphone positions is, is part of that for sure. Yeah. And that's a great, great point there too, of kind of just experimenting. Cause I think that the room mics really are the mics that you can have the fun with and, and really yeah. go crazy with, or you know, maybe you saturate them or you compress them super heavily or you, yeah, like you said, throw them in the hallway. Like I've, I've thrown mics in the bathroom tons of times. Yeah. You usually yeah. get really reflective sounds there. Right. Um, yeah. What about the idea of, um, height when it comes to room mics? Cause I, you see people often set things up really low or really high. Like how does that affect the signal? You know, it really depends on the room. And I do, I do all kinds of things. You know, sometimes I put my room mics low, sometimes I put them high. It really depends on the room. And, and it's really, again, uh, put the room mic up, listen to what it sounds like. And if it doesn't sound right to you, move it around till it does, you know, or try, try putting your mic up high or putting it low or putting it up against the wall or putting it out in the middle of the room. A useful thing to do is say you're going to record drums and you're going to put up some room mics, have the, you know, have the drums positioned where you want them, have the drummer sit there and play and then walk around the room and listen for places where a room mic might work well listen to the sound as you walk around the room. It's a really good exercise. Yeah, it's kind of like what you said earlier about finding the position for the instruments to be sitting in too. It's like Absolutely. you're just doing the same thing, but you're doing it with, yeah, just you, with your ears to find that ambience. Or maybe if you're fortunate enough to have like a runner or something like that, somebody who can grab the mic and literally walk around and that makes it even easier, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, get some sort of microbot or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's awesome. And And, you know, I do think a lot of the people listening to this are maybe working in more home studio environments. So they might not have a ton of depth or a ton of space, but there there is definitely a lot of room to still play around, even in a home recording setup. Absolutely. And the luxury of working in a home studio environment is maybe you're not paying for studio time. So you have plenty of time to experiment, plenty of time to try things out and and learn some techniques or try something new and see how it sounds. So that's that's a really useful thing to do. Um, and then, you know, again, I very much believe in getting the sound at the source, working with microphone selection and technique. Um, and once you dial that stuff in, then, you know, also there's tools of EQ. Maybe if there's a certain resonance in the room that just doesn't sound good, then just EQ that out or that kind of thing too. Um, and, and distortion can be really fun to apply to some room mics or, or compression, mess around with things like that, too, can get really interesting sounds as well. Yeah. What about the idea of uh, microphone pattern selection for, for room mics? Uh, do you tend to lean more towards like a cardioid pattern or omnidirectional or what, what kind of techniques mics, do you like? For room mics, I often use omnis. Although I, I use cardioids, too. You know, some of the mics I want to use might just be a car fixed cardioid pattern, and I'll use that. Um, so it really varies. But if I'm using a cardioid pattern, I might experiment with, do I point it towards the drum kit or do I point it away from the drum kit at the wall or that kind of thing too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point too. Cause I, you're right. I think a lot of people forget about that. And it's, it's still like, you know, I'm trying to record drums. So I'm going to point the mic at the drums and, you know, it, it, sometimes just actually having it away from the, 
away from the drums is the way to go. Yeah, especially for an ambience mic. Uh, and another thing I do sometimes, uh, sometimes it, like the hallowed halls, the room I record in a lot, it, it's a big room. It's a very live sounding room. And so oftentimes I'll put some gobos around the drum kit if I'm looking for a tighter sound. I'll put some gobos around the drum kit to kind of absorb some of that ambience from, you know, keep it from getting into, at least into the close mics. But another thing I also find is often cool is I'll put a room mic on the other side of the gobo from the drum kit. So having that, that, that uh, um, some kind of isolation or barrier between the source and the room mic, that emphasizes the room sound a bit more, and that can be kind of cool too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, then you get less of that direct sound. Exactly. Hitting it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that, that that is a great technique actually for especially for home studios where you don't have all of that depth and that room to move and it's like as long as you can if you can simulate the depth there by removing some of that direct sound then you can make your room sound a lot bigger than yeah. it actually is. And and also just to be clear, you can get a sense of depth you know, ambient mics might be far away or they might be really you know, distant and it might be really roomy, but you can get some sense of depth, maybe a really good sense of depth from mics that aren't that far away, like the, the distance between overhead mics and a close mic on a, on a drum. That can help add that sense of depth for sure. Of course, yeah. And I think too, you can kind of play around with, you know, a lot, a lot of times people do stereo overheads, but even just like a mono overhead that's in the sure. middle there, sometimes you can use that as a little bit more of an ambient kind of mic or, or something that's a little bit more affected that can add, add some cool characters to your sound as well. Yeah. And I often, I often will do some, even if I am using stereo overheads, I will often have some kind of a mono mic that I use as more of an affected mic that I do some extreme processing on. And maybe I'll just cheat that in sort of underneath the sound to provide some interesting texture or whatever. And that can be really cool too. So yeah, a mono mic or even just using mono on your overhead, that can be a cool sound. You know, that's a certain sound. I will say, um, and this is partially the influence of that stint I did at Aspen Music Festival and and we really got into stereo mic technique. Um, another aspect of providing that sense of depth, I find, is using stereo mic techniques. Um, because... Uh, and it's worth, you know, going, if you're not already familiar with sort of formal stereo techniques, you know, XY, ORTF, space pair, midside, stuff like that, you know, it's worth going online and, and, and researching that a little bit. Um, a well-used stereo technique can give a very realistic sense of being in the room, of, of being in front of that instrument. And that that sort of side-to-side -side spatial information in addition to the sort of depth spatial information really can come across well with uh, a well-used stereo technique. So that, I th I'd say, is another part of, of what I do. That's a great, great tip as well because, yeah, again, people don't really... Those are, those are my techniques that I don't think a lot of people discuss, but they're, they're definitely useful and, and, you know, they're, they're not just for orchestras or whatever, you know, like there's... Ab no, absolutely not. Yeah, they're for... It's interesting. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, I listen to podcasts and I read books and I watch videos. Uh, Bruce Swedeen talks about, he likes to record lots of things in stereo. And, you know, I don't record everything in stereo at all. But it is interesting that it does provide a sense of depth and a, a sense of realism as well. Mm -hmm. I guess... I guess part of it too, and one question I often see come up is that people are not sure of which instruments to record in mono versus stereo. And, and they're definitely, you do have to be aware of what decisions you're making and why you're doing it so that in the end, when you're mixing, you're not just overwhelmed by 
all the new tracks that you have. So what kind of tips would you have for people who maybe have that question in the back of their mind? That's a really good point to bring up, I think. Um, and I, I think you do want to have the whole song in, in, in mind. You want to have the mix that maybe you're going to try to do in mind. Um, as an example, like an acoustic guitar. Sometimes I'll record that, oftentimes I'll record that in mono. And sometimes I'll record it in stereo. And it really depends how it's going to fit into the mix and what kind of part it plays. So if I'm recording a singer-songwriter and it's just acoustic guitar and vocal, I'm definitely going to record that acoustic guitar in stereo because it needs to take up more space in the mix and it needs to you know, hopefully provide sort of an enveloping uh, sound that the singer is going to be in the middle of or something like that. Whereas if I have a really busy rock mix with a whole bunch of instruments and the acoustic guitar is maybe just playing more of a sort of percussion kind of background kind of feel and it's not a major part of the arrangement, then I'm probably just going to record it in mono because I don't want to take up quite as much space in the mix. So yeah, definitely thinking about what, and this is a, a central part of mixing, thinking about what that part, what function that part plays within the song, within the arrangement, within the mix. That will inform your decision of how to record, how you, whether you use stereo, whether you use a dynamic mic or a condenser mic, whether you're going for a big full frequency sort of sound, or if you're going for more of a limited frequency band that's going to fit in better with everything else, those kind of decisions. I love it. Yeah, that, that's such an important part to consider. And, you know, it is really the reason why people say you can't fix it in the mix. It's like, you shouldn't be fixing it in the mix. You should be just building on top of what you did in the recording stage, but not not trying to fix it. And 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 a lot of the times your mix should almost be kind of roughed out by the time you start because you've, you've arranged it that way, right? Yeah, ideally. If you, if you can do that, as much as you can do that. And that's, you know, that's a huge part of why I really believe in getting finished sounds on the way in as you're recording. And, you know, you can do a lot in a mix. You can fix a lot in a mix, but then you're maybe sort of fighting against some stuff. Whereas if the sounds are designed to work in that mix, then you're, it's much easier uh, and there are things you can achieve, you know, in recording that you just can't duplicate. You can't fix in the mix, like a really good stereo recording that has depth to it of an instrument. You can't actually, maybe you can get close, but you can't actually achieve that in mixing alone if it was recorded in a way that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then as far as the ambience side of things goes, how do you determine when to use like a reverb plugin versus relying on your on your room? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, partially, it depends what I'm trying to achieve. Um, so like if I'm trying to achieve a very realistic sound, it sounds like you're there in the room with the instrument, then I'm definitely, if I can, going to try to do that with my mic technique and how I recorded and ambience and that kind of thing. Um, sometimes you're using ambience to try to provide maybe an artificial sound that isn't realistic, but more of a lush sound or, or an effect or something like that. And then, you know, you might use some kind of plugin or any kind of effect to achieve that. Sometimes the recording you get to mix doesn't have the sort of room sound or ambience or depth that you would like. And then you're trying to use plugins or effects to achieve that as much as you can. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And then as far as choosing the right sort of reverbs or that kind of thing, you know, how, what's your normal approach to, to that process? Yeah, that's, that's a good question too and kind of a tricky one. And um, a lot of times when I am starting a project, 
I'll spend some time just bringing up some reverb plugins, especially if I have a certain thing in mind. I'll spend some time just bringing up some reverbs and experimenting, trying some different settings and just looking for sounds that sound good to me or interesting or that they might work for the project. Um, so I think experimentation. Um, you definitely, another thing about using uh, artificial reverb or even ambience that was recorded naturally or any kind of sounds, you have to think about the frequency response of, of that reverb. And you want to make sure in the context of the mix that it's not creating muddiness or not obscuring things. I definitely filter um, my, use some EQ, especially some filtering on my effects, my reverbs, to make sure that I'm getting frequencies that will add to the mix in a good way, but won't cause muddy. Yeah, that's a very common thing. L low frequencies and reverb can really contribute to muddiness in a mix. And you want to listen for that and use EQ and filtering to, to take care of that. Yeah, that's a great point too. And I would even say that the, the top end of a lot of reverbs can be problematic as well, especially when it comes to vocals. If you're getting a lot of sibilance in there and that yep. kind of stuff is fighting it as well, that's another spot that people can start EQing. Um, there's even, you know, like side chaining, uh, side chaining reverbs. I know a lot of people that do that as well to maybe duck out the, the verb a little bit when the vocal's being sung, that kind of thing. So it's out of the way. Like there's, there are ways to clean up your reverb so that it can it can fit the context of the mix a lot better and yeah. not be so muddy, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very much, you know, mixing is very much about listening to the big picture, the whole song, and thinking about how, how all of the elements fit into that and thinking about are there elements that are fitting in in a way that are detrimental and how do I fix that? And it's it's about having maybe a vision, an idea for how the parts of the song should work together and the big picture, and then using your grab bag of skills and tools and, and plugins you have and anything like that to sort of solve those problems. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, not just I mean, problem solving is, is one aspect, but also maybe to enhance things in a way that, that provides a good result. For sure. Now, as far as um, reverb types, I know you said you kind of just experiment, but do you typically have like go-to reverb types that you use for specific instruments? Like, I do. I do. Um, absolutely. I, I use plate reverbs a lot, especially on vocals and sometimes on other things too. Um, I also tend to like uh, convolution reverbs. If I'm going for more realistic sound, I often use convolution reverbs that you know sound pretty much like a room, hopefully. Um, so those are two of my ones that I use a lot. Sometimes I'll use what I consider more of a, a lush reverb, sort of a, like a lexicon type chorusy kind of thing. If I'm going for that sort of, again, lush sort of sound. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends what I'm going for. But also, I, I, you know, I think like anybody else, I, I get into habits and ruts, and I like I always fall back to the plate reverb, and that's another reason why before I start a project, I might just call up some presets and just try to think of something different that I didn't use last time and try to search for something new that's a, a little bit a variety or something. Yeah, yeah. Do you typically work off of, of a template that maybe has some of these reverbs already in there or are you starting from scratch every time? I usually, um, I, I do have a template that I start from. My template is more about routing. I do have some plugins loaded, but I don't have a lot of reverb plugins loaded in my template. Again, that is an effort 
for me not to fall into the same old habits that I, my go-to things that I usually do. That's why I asked. Cause I wasn't yeah. sure. Yeah. Sometimes when you do have those effects in there, it's just like, it's just so easy to just go back to what you normally use. But, but when you actually force yourself to try something different or, you know, try a different preset or whatever, then, then you're like, Oh, this is kind of cool. I can, I can use this for this application that kind of thing. And yeah, totally. maybe that becomes your new go-to for the next few projects that you work on or something like that. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm trying more and more. I'm trying to, for each project, try to craft something that's a little bit unique for that particular project. I, I more and more, I'm trying to do that. Of course. And I think that that is definitely important because I mean, some people want to be known for having their sound, you know, and, and their sound is that every band that they work with sounds the exact same. And maybe they focus only on one specific genre of music. And I mean, some, for some people that works, but then for other people, it's more like catering to the artists and the different genres. And, you know, it sounds like you're the kind of person that experiments with a lot of different stuff in the audio industry. You've worked in live sound and studio and field recording and all that kind of stuff. And, and so you, you've kind of dabbled in a lot of different uh, creative creative areas of the audio industry, and so it would also make sense to be creative in the in in the studio or live sound or whatever, and just experiment with different sounds there and different artists, and and really cater to different artists' needs rather than you know making everything all the exact same, right? Definitely, I definitely try to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Cool, man. Well, I mean, I don't want to take up too much more of your day, and uh, I think you you've you gave us some amazing answers there, and I love just everything you said about ambience and, and ways that people can approach that. Cause I, I definitely know that ambience is a tough topic for a lot of people, especially in, in home studios that, you know, they don't know how to maximize their space or how to really get that, that fullness out of their, out of their rooms. But I think you gave us some really great points here to, uh, Let's, for people to yeah, it, it occurs to me, we should talk about early reflections. Versus, sure. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, as, as many of your listeners will know, if you have a reverb or some kind of ambience, it could be broken down into sort of two components. One is the early reflections, and then one is sort of the more the reverb tail, let's call it. And you can imagine you're in maybe a, a kind of small room, like we're each in a room right now that's not very big. If you have a vocal mic set up in the middle of that room with a singer, when that singer sings, the early reflections are the initial sort of bounces off the wall. So if I, even right now, I'm talking to my microphone right now, and there's going to be sort of initial reflections. When I say something, there's going to be that initial bounce off the wall. Those are early reflections. And then the reverb tail, the ambience is sort of the, that, that wash of reflections that builds up over time. And it, I think it's also true that your early reflections provide a lot of your sense of realism and it, it, it gives you a sense of the space that you're in. And so if you don't have a huge room and, but you're trying to maximize your efforts and maximize what you can do in that room, you might be able to use the early reflections in your room to give you a sense of realism and then add some artificial reverb to fill out, you know, to give that larger size, that larger feel. Um, and some, some reverb plugins, you can have separate control over the early reflections. Um, or it might just be you keep the artificial reverbs early reflections as they are, but you're also utilizing the real early ambient reflections that you have in your recordings. And that might just be, you know, and you have to, you know, be careful. Smaller rooms often don't sound as good. So again, it's experimentation, trying to figure out what works. 
but it might be setting up separate mics to capture some early reflections, or it might just be as simple as using an omni pattern instead of a cardioid pattern or something like that. Or even with a cardioid pattern, you'll get some early reflections. Uh, but that's something to be aware of and, and something that you can utilize even if you're in a smaller space. Mm -hmm. And and to the point you brought up earlier about maybe just pointing a microphone at a wall, something like that, that you know, you're going to pick up a lot more of those early reflections by having a mic set up kind of ideally for that, right? Yeah. Although, yes. The thing with trying to capture that realistic sense of ambience is also the place where the mic is in the room relative to the source is probably also important. So for picking up that realistic sense of space, it's probably, not always, but probably the case that your microphone that's picking up the early reflections, even if it's a separate microphone, it might want to be in the vicinity of where the source is or where definitely where the source is and probably where the close mic on that source is. So putting that mic away against the wall might not uh, capture that sense of realistic space as much as you'd like to. Uh, but again, it's worth experimenting with. It might be really cool. So, uh, so then in that case, would you be talking about having an ambient mic that's maybe, you know, like six feet away from the instrument or that kind of thing? Like how, how far should somebody I, kind of place that I mic? Think, so I think it's more, uh, it, probably more, I would not have a separate ambient mic. I mean, I might, I might experiment with that, but it might be just choosing the primary mic that I use with the idea that I'm capturing early reflections, uh, capturing room reflections as well. Gotcha. And so it, it might be, again, it might be using an Omni pattern. It might just be placing the mic a little bit further away from my source, uh, you know, as opposed to having a vocal mic, you know, one or two inches away from the singer, I might have it a foot away from the singer, something like that. And that's going to capture more of the ambient room sound. It might be using a stereo technique. So maybe it's like an acoustic guitar or something like that. Uh, if I really want to capture that sense, realistic sense of ambience, again, a stereo, a, a formal stereo technique is going to do that in a much better way. And maybe I would use a stereo. You know, one thing I do sometimes, um, especially on background vocals, is I'll use a stereo mic array. I won't just use a, a single microphone. Um, and that gives me... A, and, and then, of course, a really cool thing to do in conjunction with that is have a stereo mic of some kind in the middle of the room. And uh, maybe you have a singer come in and do different background parts. Maybe it's a stacked harmony or something like that. Have them, if you're using a stereo mic especially, have them stand, you know, have them stand right in front of the mic for one track and then have them stand off to the left for another track and have them stand off to the right for another track. And it'll give you that feeling of, oh, there's a group of people in the room. And I have this sense of this sense of like, there's one over here and one over here and one over there. And that can add, help add sense of depth as well. That's, that's a great idea. I love that a lot. And yeah, I mean, like I, I'll frequently take advantage of that whenever I do like a gang vocal kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. Like having definitely. people circle around the mic is definitely very cool for that. And and it's not just because it's more comfortable to stand that way, but like you get you get a lot more of that that kind of ambient sound and, and that atmosphere, which is which is very cool. And uh, you know, if you I find even then you stack up a bunch of takes of people doing that and it just becomes even bigger and more more ambient and, and cool. Like I don't yeah. know, I, I think you can get away with a lot of really cool um it gives you gives you a lot of character when you do that kind of thing, and you, yeah, you, know, you really hype it up and bring it up in the mix. Yeah, and it's super fun too. Um, but again, back to the early reflections thing. the The reason 
why it gives that sense of realism is because you're recording the actual sounds in the room. You're so if I have I have a, a a stereo mic in front of my singer, and they're a little bit back from it or whatever. It's not trying to artificially reconstruct what happens as the sounds bounce off the different surfaces of the room. It's actually the sound of the sounds bouncing off the different surfaces of the room. And it's kind of hard, to, might, might be kind of hard to simulate that, but if you're just capturing the actual thing, then it's going to sound pretty realistic. And again, it's a little tricky if your room doesn't sound very good. So you might have to try to treat your room or select a room, find a room in your house that just sounds cool or, you know, that kind of thing. But it's definitely something to play around with. For sure. Yeah, sometimes those those oddball rooms are the best rooms for that kind of stuff. Like, I, I, I used to stick bands in the bathroom all the time because it was like the most reflective room. And, it, you know, it, you would get a really cool sense of ambience just by doing that. It's definitely it, it might not be the, it might not be the like the cleanest, tightest sounding room, but it, it's the one that has the most character. There's a reason people like to sing in the shower. Yeah, because <laughs> it sounds cool. There's all this interesting reflection happening and it sounds cool. Yeah. So you have a shower mic. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, well, David, again, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your day to do this. And, and you just shared so much great information. And I think people are going to be able to take this and implement a lot of cool techniques that you've, that you've taught here. So I, I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Awesome. No problem. For people who want to learn more about you, what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. My website is the best place. It's www.davidstreit.com. Streit is spelled S-T-R-E-I-T. Um, I imagine you'll have a link. I will. Uh, so it's easy to find. But yeah, uh, you can contact me through the website. There's some information, examples of things I've done. Um, I have some blog posts that uh, hopefully have some helpful information in them that might be useful. And that's the best place to find out more about me. Awesome. Cool, man. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. So that was my interview with David Streit, and I loved all the tips that he gave there in this episode about different ways that you can create ambience in your space, whether you're working in a small space or a big space. There are a lot of techniques that you can do to maximize that space. And I know a lot of people listening to this are maybe working in smaller spaces, whether it's a bedroom or a basement, but you can utilize the ambience of that room to create a more intimate feel or using a lot of tips that David suggested here, you can also use it to get a little bit more size and create a little bit more depth and space. So I think there's a lot to take from this interview and especially when it comes to the mic positioning and some of the ways that he was talking about utilizing early reflections or even using baffling to create some more separation between the dry sound and the ambient sound. All great tips that I think you should try out next time you go to record your tracks. So I hope that you found that episode helpful. And if you did, definitely make sure that you're following this podcast so you can get more helpful episodes as they come out. We've got a lot of great episodes lined up and I definitely don't want you to miss out on them. So to do that, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also another great resource that you want to check out for sure is MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, I've got tons of great resources designed to make that process super simple, super straightforward for you. And you're definitely gonna wanna check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. That is a resource on the website where I break down the entire process of mixing step-by-step, step, covering everything from the tools, what to listen for, how to actually work, what steps to take, what order to follow. We just really make the process easy for you. So you're definitely gonna wanna check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And it's a book that is available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope that you found that helpful. and. I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.